0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the New Seat Podcast, your host Chris, joined as always by my co-host Peace. Today, we have a really special episode, I'm the founder of a company that is doing something really good in the world, in my opinion, and should be in most people's opinion, solving child care affordability for parents, and their company, Hey Mirza, has been doing some really, really lovely things in the world. We're joined by the COO and co-founder of Hey Mirza, Mirza Mel and Mel, welcome to the show, how are you?
1: I'm great. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk to you today.
0: Yes, of course. So, if you could please tell the audience a little bit about your background as well. Dive a little bit deeper in about what you guys do with Hey Mirza.
1: Awesome. Yeah. So, uh, the stuff you'd see on LinkedIn. So, I spent the bulk of my career in startups across the US and Europe. You know, I've been employee number six, I've been employee number 200, mostly in hospitality and tourism. And you know really saw firsthand the impact of if you you know what what care fallout can do for workers so if you don't have childcare you can't go to work you can't get paid not only is that a huge financial implication for the employee but it's also really operationally disruptive for the business and so you know personally as well my parents got divorced when i was 9 And had to watch my mom try to become financially independent with three young kids was really hard for her. It's something that I know I'll end up being financially responsible for her now as an adult because of that burden on on her end. So really personally motivated by what we're doing, um, which leads me to what is Mirza? So we remove childcare as a barrier for employees so that they can afford to go and stay go back to and, and stay at work. Really working with employers to offset the cost of care. We do this in a couple of ways. So we help maximize available government dollars. So for the hourly worker, we can flag if they're eligible for government tuition assistance. And then employers fill that gap through a caregiving insurance product. So with by paying a little bit more per employee every year on your healthcare plan, you can offset costs for your workforce on an annual basis to help pay for child care and elder care.
2: Getting started, where, what was step one? Breaking the barrier to childcare in the workforce is something that's, I wouldn't necessarily say lofty, but definitely one that has to be purposeful and intentional. So Great. how do you guys get started?
1: Great question. So my co-founder and I were having a discussion around just the the gender pay gap kind of women in the workforce. And if you look at the gender pay gap, if you control for location, experience, title, everything like that. It's actually 98 cents to a dollar, but it's after we have kids that 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 pay gap comes into play. So the motherhood penalty makes up 80% of the gender pay gap. And so that's the steep decline in earnings a woman sees when she has a child. So I'm going to really hit you with some numbers right now, but basically for every kid A woman, you know, when you have a child, your income slope will never recover at the same rate that it was prior to having a child as a woman. And for every kid you have, you take about a 6% hit on your salary. And it's so bad that for one year unpaid out of the workforce, you lose 39% of your lifetime earnings. So that's a massive implication for for women. A lot of that is structural in the U.S. It's the fact that we don't have paid family or medical leave. We really don't support childcare. It's a private, it's seen as a private good rather than a public good. So we were really thinking, where can we move the needle? Where can we make something change? And childcare affordability felt like the, the place we could have the most impact. Like workplace bias, all of those things exist. It's a lot more of a cultural shift, but we can at least help people afford the care that they need to support their family.
2: Talk a little bit more about the deliverables. I'm sure there has to be a lot of branding efforts and awareness that has to be driven towards your potential customers, you guys being a B2B solution. What is that dynamic like? What are the efforts you guys have to do to broadcast and showcase your message and showcase your vision and the value add you guys bring to the market in terms of getting mothers that flexibility to be working, even if they do have children.
1: Yeah, I love that question. And I'm so excited to dive into that with both of you, especially. So six less than six percent of employers offer a childcare benefit. So it's a really small group. And a lot of that it really becomes an educational sales process, an educational opportunity. And it's almost helping people understand the opportunity cost of not offering childcare. So, what does that mean for your workforce? if they don't have that support, the absenteeism, the turnover, et cetera. And I think about it in two ways. When we, when we first made the product, we'd always thought about it. We are kind of before we went B2B, we thought about building an educational platform for individuals. And so we've always been very cons- like individual consumer focus. So that more of a B2C, it's almost a to b play of can we evangelize the wider public, give them the information about what they need, get them really bought into yes, we need policies like this at our workforce and get them to go to their employer to ask for this. There's kind of this bottoms-up culture drive that you can do. So on the deliverable side, it could be social media, it could be partner campaigns, it could be events. Um, we think about a lot of a lot of elements about getting in front of people and having, you know, we made a great resource for just explaining benefits for people, things like that, that we can share on an individual level. And then the second part is that top-down kind of structural change. So for us, it's working with chambers of commerce or local governments. It's bringing employees on board and working with coalitions or employers working with coalitions that are all kind of focused on this. Like Moms First US is a great example. They're a nonprofit trying to bring businesses together. So I think there's still a lot for us to be doing on a branding side We're we're kind of getting into that space with this current seed round that we've been raising. But it's, it's a fun approach of, you know, how do we have almost two different brand voices, two different m- means of communicating. So how do you tie that together? Because there is a bit of a tension between employer and employee.
2: So you clearly have experience or have put in attempts towards the B2C route in terms of branding, what you guys have going on. What are some things that you guys are anticipating on moving forward from the B2B route to attract more customers and really just speak on, you know, what you guys maybe have planned or what are some channels that you found effective, whether or not it's something that appeals to what you guys got going on?
1: Yeah. From kind of a branding standpoint. So a lot of it is, is that thought leadership and ways in which we can, you know, it's, it's almost that idea of the more and more that people see you on LinkedIn, they engage with your content. It almost closes the sale before it begins, right? Because they already know. Oh, yeah, I've read all of the stuff that you've been saying. Of course, you know what you're talking about. That makes so much sense. So it's really trying to amplify our voices both in a digital space around you know where and where our con- like where our customers are. So LinkedIn being a key one, a lot of it is events and panels and speaking at different things. So um, some we've got a hefty conference schedule coming up for H2, where we'll be participating and speaking at a number of conferences. And again, it's just reinforcing this as something that needs to be top of mind. So a lot of HR-led conferences, things like that. And then I'm just trying, you know, I think what will be fun for us is coming up with Almost like guerrilla marketing tactics, you know, which is something you wouldn't necessarily think about for B two B SaaS. But how can we? How can we get? And it might be like hosted dinners. It might be like again. It's just trying to help. It's it's that constant impression over and over again that we are here. That reminder that Mirza is a solution is is the solution for you. But yeah, does that answer the question?
2: Absolutely, it does. You you also mentioned that you guys are an early stage startup currently or have raised, I believe, a seed round.
1: Yeah. So we're in the midst of seed round right now. So we're doing a first close this month or this week, like pray, and then with a second close for September, but looking pretty positive. We're really excited about the round, have incredible lead investor and, and some other follow on. So,
2: Well, speaking it into an existence, definitely congratulations as you Thank guys you. close that up. But how how large is your team? And talk a little bit about the culture in that small knit of individuals that you guys have currently and how you expect to scale that culture you guys have moving
1: forward. Yeah, so such a good question. So we started this company in February, 2020. And then, you know, in the UK and then immediately went into lockdown. And so in the UK, we had, we were in lockdown for a total of nine months over the course of the year and full lockdown. Like you couldn't, you could walk outside with one person, couldn't sit inside anywhere. Like, like when those nine months were full on, like, you know, so a lot of our hiring was fully remote, virtual. And it also, but I think the best thing about COVID is that it really expanded people's minds around who can we bring onto our team. So we have nine, 10, 10 people on the team right now across, I think five countries. So we have. We have someone in Kenya, someone in Portugal, a few people in the UK, some in the US, and then um, Brazil. So for us, like culture, how do we build that? It's always been very top of mind because it's not something that naturally just happens around the water cooler anymore. It's something that you have to be very deliberate about. And so for us, a lot of it was really defining values for the company early on and you know, pulling an Amazon, but building that into the way that we... We do performance reviews that we talk to each other when we do shout outs on calls, you know, recognizing that we're all realigned with those same shared values, making sure that we build those as a team and reinforce those. A lot of it is ritual kind of things around our weekly standups, all monthly, all hands, things like that. And then our goal for the next, for this round too, is be able to have more in-person, like, you know, a summit or something like that where we can allow people to see each other face to face. There's still a couple of people on the team I've never actually met in real life. So yeah, it's which is wild, but it's pretty cool. Is that
0: Uh, is what does that feel like for you? Cause obviously, hey Mears, it wasn't your starting point in your career. Start you've been working and going to the office, I imagine, your whole entire life. So what is it like to have an employee for you now that you've actually never met once? What does that feel like?
1: You know, it's so funny. It takes I I I love the flexibility of being remote. I love that I can work from yeah. anywhere in the world. I love that we have team members from all over the world. Like yeah. the the way that we think about our solution, the the kind of different context that people come with is invaluable. I don't think you can. You I don't really think you can pay for that. You, you know, or sorry, what's the right word? You can't like. There's not enough ways to to to, to ignore me. It's really yeah. powerful. <laughs> The thing about meeting someone, it's it takes a lot more time to understand someone's body language and cues. So especially like on like I barely even look at screens anymore because it just makes me want to like cry a lot. But it's it takes a lot longer to read how someone else is feeling about something when you're not physically in the same place. So as a manager, as someone you know, that that's been really hard. It's been really hard. Like communication too, I think is what falls through the most. It's like in an office, you can have signs up, you can have, you know, just like an announcement every day where you're like, Hey, everybody to take a break for five, let's go. And, and that I think where I might think, Oh yeah, I told you guys this last, two, you know, a couple of weeks ago, me telling someone that once isn't enough. So it's like the, you know, having to over, over communicate, There's some amazing tools that have come out of COVID like Miro or Miro or, you know, some of these collaboration tools. But I still think nothing beats an actual physical whiteboarding session. You just lose the dynamic of building on each other in a virtual setting sometimes. So while I love the flexibility, I definitely as as an early stage startup founder would love an office as well sometimes where I can just like go to people and be like, no, 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 come here. (laughs) You know, it's it's. The pros outweigh the cons for us right now.
2: You see an office space in the near future?
1: I think we'll have a hub eventually. I I'll be based in New York starting in September, and my co-founder splits her time and between New York and London still. And I just it makes sense for us to have somewhere that people can be in the same place. It it but you know even in the U.S. we've got people on the West Coast. You know it's not no it's not like New York is a central spot so. I don't see a, a physical location for a few years, but, but we'll see. So
2: I mean, a core piece of you know quality culture is as you mentioned earlier is communication, right? So you 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 mentioned that sometimes you don't even look at the screen and like it at times can get difficult to almost like feel the vibe in terms of how they're interpreting the information that you're you're relaying, whether it be something that needs to get down the roadmap or just saying on or expressing emotion, right, towards something right. that's going on, whether it be in the fundraiser something like that. How do you plan on dealing with that at scale? I understand that. I'm assuming you guys are going to continue to grow internationally. How do you plan on defeating that issue or maybe uh, just limiting the sustaining quality communication within your culture, if that's something, of course, that you want to be a part of your identity?
1: Yeah, great question. So... I do think trying to have at least an annual in-person event, if not biannual, is something that's really top of mind for us. Just to get like, you know, even just that one to two days makes such a world of difference of being in the same place as someone that establishes trust much more quickly. Like it facilitates working a hundred percent. The, you know, it's funny, like I've been working with a, we've been working with some founder coaches and we've been working on body language with a zoom screen. So it's like, something we call warm being a warm alpha of like allowing someone to kind of come at you and then really establishing yourself as a leader by leaning into the screen and, you know, kind of establishing that dominance, just through like it's relearning body language for a virtual setting, which is really interesting. We yeah, also that's
0: do- super yeah. interesting last. I've, so I've never, have never heard of that. It like does
1: feel like that. Like, if yeah, no, nah, I, like, yeah. I wish, I you wish know, people out so- there
0: could see you come <laughs> yeah. closer. Really? That was, I was like, Oh yeah, that's so true.
1: Right. And so like, obviously, I'm not trying to do that. Have, I would prefer to not have to do that. But you can, you can, there are there are things to leverage. And then the third thing I would say is we hired someone this spring as a people ops, kind of lead, who's now become chief of staff people ops, but she, you know, I think it's. I, I think you could get a lot of pushback from investors of having a people person at a company of our size, but I would almost argue exactly the opposite, that if you do want to scale and grow a culture, like a very like culture-focused company and something that is healthy and people want to be at, you, I think you need that as early as possible. So she's been instrumental in helping build out some of the programming, some of the just like different things that we can do to enhance and maintain that culture. And I think, you know, we really think about culture as something that people add to not fit into. So for us, it's making sure that we continue to hire people who can bring something different, who have different perspectives, who look different, who sound different so that we all learn from each other and constantly challenge, you know, we don't want any Kendall Jenner Pepsi moments. So um, I think that that's, that's a big and, you know, we're, we're two female founders and my co-founder, you know, is an a- Asian American. So I think always having those things top of mind helps make it more intentional as we go.
2: Absolutely. So what's really interesting is a lot of CPOs and CHROs actually appreciate that you guys made the initiative of bringing on a people hire so soon because usually we hear people say, hey, you know, people consider it, not even make the decision. People consider it around 40, 50, arguably 60, 75. So, so you guys take initiative, definitely. And says a lot about not only you guys wanting to sustain culture in the long term, but also like you guys are here to stay. Like we want to make sure our foundation is strong and viable for all things to come, you know, good and bad, which is pretty cool. But how do you culturally align yourselves with people that you guys are trying to bring in? Suppose you guys have five quality candidates. What is that cultural process or cultural vetting process like trying to make sure this is the right person for this team?
1: Yeah, so we, our interview process and everything is always, or usually like hiring manager team members conducting the first two to three rounds. And then the final round is always values based with other members of the team who might not even work with that candidate directly so that we can really make sure that it is something that like the whole team feels like they had the chance to buy into again, that values, it's very, it is very like Amazon-y, but, um, you know, really trying to understand, you know, you can have different contexts and a different experience and and be from a different country, but values can still align in the same way. And so making sure that on that page, we're all, we're all, you know, on the same, we're all on the same page in that sense. So I think that that's a big one. We have, you know, a people directory. We have people do user manuals as well when they join so that people understand like best way to work with me. Like what, you know, what do I like? What do I don't? So that people can really get that sense too and understand best means of communication, maybe not take things as personally or, you know, just like have more context for how people like to work. And then, I mean, I I think that honestly that that's probably the, the gist of it right now, but if you guys have ideas on better ways, you know, or, or an even more, not even better, but just like more ways to really bring that to the table. I think it's you, you're the experts here. And I, I'm always looking for ways to continue to build that out and make this summer. People want to show up every day, you know?
2: I mean, we've, we've heard a multitude of different responses and really it just comes down to the way companies, depending on the industry and the sides, is very fluid and dynamic. So almost it's contingent upon, I know Chris, you could, I know you want to say something afterwards, but it was contingent upon who the founders are and what their preferences are in terms of what they're looking for at scale, where they currently stand now. Sometimes different departments hold different identities, personalities. So that has its own rule book at times, which is really interesting, but I wouldn't necessarily call us the experts, but you know, just, just learning as time goes on, as we talk with great people like yourself.
0: I agree with peace right there. So we've, we've talked a lot about your culture at, hey, at uh hey Mirza. Something that we're really interested in is the relationship between culture and branding we seem to we seem to believe that they seem to go hand in hand with each other and a company that we see or perceive as a strong brand we might think to have a strong culture and vice versa what are your thoughts on that and how do you approach that with Mirza?
1: yeah that's insane timing so we we built a brand identity kind of do, you know document and had brand guidelines when we first started um we did quite a lot of user research and feedback and and built it from there and As things, especially because we'd first started really focusing on the individual, and now we're shifting a bit. We're going to do an exercise in the next couple of weeks where we actually bring the entire team together to reassess our brand and how everyone thinks about the brand, how they speak about it, to to just see what do we need to update. You know, what do we want to be promoting as a brand, like internally, and how like how do we want to be perceived? Obviously, it's going to be different than how people perceive you, but just it's a great a great mechanism to really. Take a pause and say, wow, things have shifted a lot in three years, both from a product perspective, a customer perspective, from even what we're, you know, even the focus that we have now. So how can we reinvent, not reinvent, but just help our brand grow and evolve uh, as, as well? And our brand has always been... Progressive, you could say. I feel like pretty our our social content, our blogs, everything is no holds bars. From like we think of ourselves as the cool aunt that you can go to to ask questions about, you know, kids and things like that, and like how do I navigate this? So not necessarily your your own parent, but that person you can still look for for advice who is a bit snarky. As we as we shift more towards an HR demographic, there are probably some elements in that to reassess, but. I think that the the culture does does really the brand I, I like that relationship is it feels very symbiotic and especially because we are mission driven, it's really allowed us to hire people who believe in that mission and who are aligned with where that goal is, and that perpetuates itself into how the brand is. So you know our brand voice is the way it is because these are topics that shouldn't still have to be topics that you know we shouldn't still have to be advocating for. Gender equality, but here we are you know two hundred years behind schedule, or according to you know Melinda Gates foundation and stuff is we're we're about two hundred years away from from equality across the globe, so you have to have it be a little bit aggressive in some ways, but I do think that the mission helps align culture and brand in a way that might be different from like a consumer product or or a different kind of I mean, depending on yeah, that's not a fair assumption, but you know, different than other other brands.
2: Yeah, your your customer demographic is pretty fitting, honestly, with our podcast because we we speak all the time with CPOs, CHROs. Hopefully, maybe we can even make some introductions to help you guys out, which yeah. would be cool. But what what is that dialogue like in terms of introducing yourselves and showing showcasing your value add? Like, are there certain realizations you've come to see in time? Are there certain strategies you found effective just to almost speak their language and be appealing to them, if you could just walk us through that.
1: Yeah. So the interesting thing about this space is that it's very much case by case in a lot of ways. The people who get it, get it immediately. They're either parents themselves. They have you know, seeing this going, they absolutely know what the the problem and how it's affecting their business and they want to be able to, you know, we're, we're speaking with a battery manufacturer right now about building out a stipend program for their warehouse. And every conversation I have with her is like 10 minutes long instead of a full 30, because she's just like, yep, sure. Like I don't, it's the, it's amazing because I don't have to, like, I don't have to educate. She's already, she's already there. For a vast majority of folks, and and it's something that we've seen shift in the past couple of months, we're getting a lot more inbound. And the inbound that we're getting is from healthcare, manufacturing, construction, those frontline organizations where childcare-related absenteeism and turnover is really impacting the business. And so it's a fun game to navigate of both touching on... Heartstrings, but also really pushing forward the bottom line impact for an employer, especially because in the market, you know, the last year or so, especially twenty twenty three, we've seen tons of layoffs. We've seen a lot of budgets being cut. How do you advocate that this is something that you know is a necessary spend? I was at a talk with I'm going to blank on his name, but the head, like the uh, as the uh, you know the CHPR or well chief people officer for PayPal. (laughs) <laughs> and um he said this great quote that was like, We consistently think about childcare as opex, but we should be thinking about it as a capex because employees are assets. So why wouldn't we be investing in our employees? And I loved that of if we reframe it to think that your employee base isn't another expense line, it's an it's an investment, it's a, the ability to grow your organization then of course you should be investing in them and their ability to help. And so that, that I've actually been shifting the way that I talk about things, kind of realigning with that of how, how do we drive that home and how do we help people get on, on that? It's a combination of like caring for your people and then making the business case for it. So it's constantly battling between the two or, or aligning the two.
2: I mean, leaning into what you said earlier with people who get it, get it. Have you dealt with companies that you thought like, hey, this would be something that they value, understand that they, they speak highly about employee experiences and optimizing on their employees as assets, as you mentioned? Have you seen that often or not as often? Or what, what is that experience like?
1: Yeah. You know, it's funny. It's, I feel like a lot of, it, so it's, it's either that, like, so, okay, I'm trying to think. One example, we were talking to uh, an NFL team, actually. And they have a ton of employees, especially, uh, you know, for, around the stadium, like a lot of administrative staff, you, we don't really think about, you know, it's not just like the, t- the NFL team. It's everyone that has to go into running that team. And we were talking to them about about childcare and they were like, oh, we've never heard an employee ask about that. And it was immediately just, oh, that's not an issue for our employees. And I'm, I'm one to kind of come back and have you ever asked them? You know, so it's, it, we we tend not to track caregiver status as employers. We don't actually ask people what their families look like or what they have. And if you are that out of touch with your employee base, how can you even know what they're struggling with? But so that's been interesting. A lot of the pushback we get is is on the the cost side. It is a pretty big investment to help offset the costs of care for your organization. So. You know, that's the harder thing to work around is trying to find a budget that makes sense for people. That's not gonna like the sticker shock isn't gonna make them immediately walk away. But it's rare that people are completely out of touch. Like, there's really only a like less than a handful of times that I've been like people. People have been like, "Oh no!" Unless they pay their employees so well that they're like, "Oh, it's fine," you know. But <laughs> those are rarer cases than that. So.
2: Well, I'm hoping that team just isn't the Giants, because we're not Giants fans over here.
0: No, uh, that's a lie. No, this is a Cowboys <laughs> fan. I am a Giants fan. Man. Are you kidding me? Are
1: you? I'm a Pats fan. So, yikes. Uh,
0: <laughs> we went. We went to school in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, we de- We definitely know some New England Patriots fans.
1: Yep, I'm like a New England fan till I die. I love uh, it. Not
0: as you should be. <laughs> So something that I just want to bring up, and it ties in really well with what you're talking about, is uh, I was having a conversation with uh, someone, and his name is Anthony Onesto. He's the chief people officer of Susie Startup. He has like a bunch of LinkedIn followers, but what he was saying to me, and he said something really, really interesting, and to your point is, from an accounting perspective, people are still looked at as an expense, not as an asset. And his whole uh, his whole sort of framework he saw talking through is like how can we shift that? So just like as a founder, how do you, you know, how much do you and your co-founder value putting your people first? Like how much do you value investing in them and how important it is for how important your opinion to other founders out there to make sure you put your people first?
1: Yeah, I, I love that. Have you um have you ever read Setting the Table by Danny Meyer? No. Uh, so Thank he, you for the
0: recommendation there.
1: So good. So he's the guy who started Shake Shack, but also like Union uh, Union Square Cafe and Gramercy Tavern. like a huge yep, yep. And his whole thesis is employees first, customers second, vendors third, stakeholders fourth. And it's always for him being like employees at the forefront because without happy employees, your operations won't run, your customers won't be happy. You won't be able to generate returns for your shareholders. So, I think what I get frustrated, both, you know, with with the kind of American context of employees as expendable, and you know, CEOs making God knows how much money every year, and then you know, like the F, the kind of Fortune 500 list, and all of these companies that are public who have margins that are out, like insane, but they're paying their employees fifteen dollars an hour you know, you wouldn't have that without your employees. Like they make your business run. They are what allows you to be profitable to make that money. So how do you not put them first? I It's just a, it's a wild question for me or really a wild concept for me that I wouldn't like take care of my, of my employees at the very forefront. You know, even for us when we're, we, we had some funding kind of fall through and we were, you know, we're, we're bringing this around together, but it's been down to the wire and it's us we're delaying every vendor payment we possibly can so that we can put you know pay our employees and, and it's just trying you know, you have to just really think through what are your priorities and how are you gonna do that but employees who are happy will work for you harder and you like they there is actually a study that um, happy employees like companies with employees who are highly satisfied generate up to 30 percent more return than companies who don't so there's there are economic benefits to putting your employees first. There's like a lot of, you know, there's a use case for it. It's also, I, I don't know. It's just, I don't, I don't understand.
2: <laughs> who, are, who are some companies that you absolutely do not want to work with? Like what are some traits that you, you tend to see? Like, Hey, like this is, this is just a line we just don't cross that. You just know, just wouldn't benefit. Maybe even if they could be paying customer, but you know, from a value perspective, you just don't want to entertain.
1: That's a good question. I, you know, I think it, I'm trying to think through, like, if I want to say specific brands without like shooting myself in the foot, but I, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, right? I think especially because a lot of the companies that we're targeting right now are massively hourly workforces, we're actually trying to shift the way they think. And so it's, it's coming to them with, you might not be spending a lot on your employees right now, but here's like a a cost effective way to move the needle. So while they might have practiced it, you know, like if they are paying their employees under what I would think is a, you know, cost of living (laughs) hourly rate or something like that, that's where we think we can actually make the most difference. So it's, it's a, it's a weird tension of like brand alignment versus versus where we can actually make a difference. I would say that for us, like any, you know, we would probably more look at people who are campaigning against gender equality, against like any kind of gen- like LGBTQ plus rights, like any anything like that would be on our no list or people who are like actively, you know, almost like it's hard, though. It's it's a it's a very hard question. I actually don't have like a hit list um, in mind or like a, a red list. But I mean, that answers the question, I think, fairly
2: well. Uh, but I would love to go back into points you were making earlier in terms of how you foresee navigating culture at scale. What's the quick pitch as to why people should work with you guys at Mirza? What's so great about what you guys are building in regards to your vision and your product and your services, as well as what you guys have going on internally with your culture and all those all those good things?
1: Oh, got a quick pitch. I mean, I think I hope that you're joining a mission driven culture where everyone has has the space they need to be the best version of themselves. One of the values that a team member came up with was that we are a place to thrive and personally, professionally, and culturally. And that was a really powerful thing to hear from one of our own team members is this, we are facilitating a place where people can thrive, you know, from a, we are fully remote, fully flexible. We have core hours that allow parents to, you know, have time with their kids We are, um, we have care days. We have, you know, I, I think it just, we have caregivers at the forefront with everything we do, whether that's our own employees or the customers that we're trying to reach and really, you know, try to embody that across our organization. And I'd like to say that we are a very curious and innovative team that like where everyone feels like they, their, their opinion matters and has, has weight.
2: So you mentioned earlier, you guys are a mighty team of 10, I believe. Yes. So you you also just brought up the fact that one team member said one of your values is people can thrive. The fact that an employee had the ability to almost advocate or almost come up with the values pretty impressive at an early stage. Do you think culture should be molded from, I guess, as a collective, like everyone at the early stage moving forward or do you think it's more of a top-down approach as you guys continue to build?
1: So we had we had come up with four values my co-founder and I when we first started that we really were like okay these are the key ones that we want to have like when we when we started making our first hires and we had to have an employee handbook and everything so we came up with that and then about a year and a half two years in we'd grown the team from two to you know more than two and I felt disingenuine being the ones who had decided, I wanted everyone to have a chance to, to reassess and, and confirm that those values mattered, and then to see if we needed to add or change any. And it's something that I would love to continue practicing. I think that when you bring people along rather than tell them, you get so much more buy-in. You get so much more like power behind those decisions. And, and it was really incredible to hear what people brought to the table and what they. you know, how they, they reflected the culture that we'd subconsciously or and consciously built. And so then naming that allows that to continue to prosper. I think it's something that I would love to have be a rich, like a yearly thing where the whole, like maybe it's not all on a call and us doing a workshop, but people voting and being able to really participate feels like the most inclusive way forward for us.
2: Was that cultural agenda something that you guys you guys in terms of you and your co-founder wanted from the jump back when you guys started or is this something you guys started to feel and realize as time went on?
1: I think it was something that we we have been very intentional about the whole time. Even from when the two of us first started working together and having to navigate communicating fully virtually because we couldn't, you know, for the first three and a half months couldn't be in the same place. It was, you know, it's it's the a lot of I think it's some of it, I think it's being two women founders and having worked a lot in tech and startups and some kind of unhealthy atmospheres making, it was very top of mind for us was that we wanted this to be a place where people wanted to be. And so even if it was just the two of us having to, you know, say in text, this is a sarcastic comment or read this in this tone, like we literally would spell that out. So I think we were already so in touch with how do we want to respect and work with each other? How do we then build that out to how our, our team can do that too. But yeah, I think, I think from the beginning, I would say, you know, I'm not going to like blow us, you know, be like, Oh my God, we were the best. But I do think that it was something very top of mind from the beginning.
2: So really looking to close it up, what's the vision? What's the five to 10 year plan that you guys anticipate on executing on moving forward?
1: Yeah. So, you know, we're, we're starting off, you know, we're, we're launching this eligibility feature. We really see ourselves being like a kind of one-stop shop for caregivers, whether that's owning the entire payments ecosystem around an insurance product providers network, whether that's helping families navigate five two nines and other ve- like financial vehicles that can help support their family. But we're, Really, again, focus too, on that that very specific kind of lower income population. How can we help people navigate the benefits cliff? How can we build vehicles where you know if employees qualify for assistance, but a dollar more per hour would make them lose that access? How can we help employers help them work towards a career pathway where they can get promoted without being financially ruined? You know there's so much in that space of really changing the way that America. Works in a lot of ways, and and focusing on an employee base that hasn't been necessarily given the support they need to excel career wise. And I, I don't even know. There's so many ways that I can answer this question, but that's that's a big one. And then I think just you know having this in five years, having this insurance product, this caregiver insurance product, be a no brainer for your employee package. Like it's something that I want to be part of every healthcare plan where. If you are employed by someone, you can have access to that coverage that you need.
0: Well, Mel, that's amazing what you guys are doing. We're excited to you know see you guys continue to change uh, child care for everyone in this country and around the world. But Mel, thank you so much for coming on. You were fantastic. Tell the people where can they find more about you and about Hey Mirza. Yeah,
1: Chris Peace. Thank you guys so much. It's been an awesome conversation. I've really appreciated this. And I can't wait to like stalk all of your previous episodes and ask for introductions. But people can find us. It's uh at heymirza.com. So just w dot dot com. Our in like our socials are Mirza says hey on Twitter and Instagram. I think it's just hey Mirza on LinkedIn. And If anyone wants to email me directly or, you know, sales at Hey Mirza, if people have questions, uh, they can definitely shoot us an email there.
0: Beautiful. Mel, again, thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really, this was awesome. was super, super fun.
0: Of course, of course. And to everyone listening, thank you very much. And until next time.